1: Back in January, a few weeks after Hannah Hart's remains were identified, our field reporter, Lauren Smiley, reconnected with Sheriff Tom Allman about the upcoming coroner's inquest.
5: Lauren, good morning. Tom Allman from Mendocino.
1: You'll remember Sheriff Allman. He's been on the Hart case since the crash and hasn't wavered on his conviction that it was an intentional act. He was the one who told us that the proceedings of the two day hearing would
5: give evidence that will shock the consciousness of people who are following his case.
6: Sheriff Ullman is jovial and good-natured. He's a loud talker and sometimes wears a sheriff star pinned to the lapel of his Navy suit. He's been known to give exploding fist bumps. One gets the sense that not only does Tom Ullman love his job, he loves the nature of the work, the responsibility, the respect, the attention to detail, and the intrigue. If there was ever someone whose job it is to drum up interest in something as morose-sounding as a coroner's inquest, it's him.
5: When I left the meeting hearing some of it, I just walked out of the room and said, oh, my God.
1: He thought live-streaming the event would be helpful for everyone at home with questions.
5: Remember what the whole purpose of the coroner's inquest was. The whole purpose is to answer two questions about eight people the manner and cause of death. That's it.
6: The first new development in some time came last month when a California Superior Court judge officially pronounced Devante dead, even though his body hasn't been found. His whereabouts have remained a huge point of contention for many people who have been following the case closely. But the court filing from the sheriff's department reads, it is more probable than not that Devante Hart is deceased and died along with his siblings and parents in the vehicle crash. Allman says he is closing Devante's case with an asterisk.
5: I'm certainly aware of a contingent of citizens who have a belief that Devante was not in the car. To those and to all, the sheriff's office would certainly welcome any information that would prove our belief incorrect. It is our opinion and the jury's opinion that he lived with his family, and unfortunately, he perished with his family.
1: And the inquest made it clear that Jen and Sarah made a deliberate decision to drive off that cliff. They planned it. They worked together. It was not a spur-of-the-moment act. But... As Allman points out, for those of us seeking a tidy explanation as to why, that will never come.
5: There's one question that nobody will ever answer, and that's why. We, we can tell you what, we can tell you almost when, we can tell you certainly where, we can tell you who. But um, as a as an adult whose brother committed suicide, um, many years ago I've learned that sometimes the question why can never be answered and we can give people the reason that they can find their own answer and say well I believe it happened because of an infillment in the blanks but there's not going to be any black and white answer to why
1: From Glamour and iHeartRadio, this is Broken Hearts One Year Later I'm Justine Harmon.
6: And I'm Liz Egan. Last week, Lauren returned to Mendocino County to attend the coroner's inquest. Over the course of two days, witnesses ranging from first responders to detectives sat at a wooden desk and shared the brutal facts of the investigation. Behind them was a whiteboard on which assistants taped diagrams of the site and photos of the family. It was especially hard to look at the smiling faces of the Hart kids, as the experts relayed the grotesque details of what their little bodies endured before and after the fall. An inquest seats a jury. This one had 14 jurors.
1: But it isn't the same as a criminal trial. During an inquest, witnesses speak straight to a hearing officer. There are no objections or interruptions. During recesses in the courtroom, Lauren was able to grab a cup of coffee or check in with us back in New York. On the live stream, those breaks were filled with a stock video of a babbling brook. It's a civilized affair, almost amusingly civilized, about the least civilized thing you can imagine. Here's Lauren.
7: I've been to Willits once before. Back in November, I drove through on my way to the heart crash site. Ominous smog hung about the town, the first sign of the Paradise Fire that covered Northern California in a haze for a week. The Justice Center is a cream-colored stucco building that used to function as a bustling courtroom, but now serves as the police station. As Tom Allman explained it to me,
5: Well, it's a small town of 5,000 people. We are in a courtroom that hasn't been used for over 12 years because the, uh, the Superior Court of the state closed this courtroom officially. So this is not actually a courtroom. We're in a justice center. Literally, it has not been used for 12 years. And so we came in here a couple weeks ago, and we looked at it, and we changed the battery of the clock, and we put up a new calendar, and it's ready to go.
7: The courtroom fits an audience of approximately 50, but nearly half the seats are empty. No family members, adoptive or biological, are in attendance. The heart's neighbor, Dana DeKalb, told me she'd be watching from home. The inquest is conducted by Matthew Guichard a white-haired attorney with nearly four decades of law experience. Guichard's diligent and soothing manner kept things on track. He typically oversees inquests back in the Bay Area for deaths that directly involve law enforcement, like a police shooting or an inmate dying in custody. He's done more than a hundred of these. Before it all begins, I have questions. Big ones. I want to know what investigators heard from the friends and family members who declined to speak with me on the record. I want to know at what point, after fleeing from CPS, Jen, Sarah, or both of them together finalized their plan. I want to know whether the kids had antihistamines in their system to treat allergies or if their moms gave it to them to lull them to sleep. I want to know where Jen got the alcohol that was in her system. Did she stop somewhere on the side off of Highway 1? Or did she bring it with her, knowing she might need it for what was to come later? Call it closure, even obsession. I want absolute clarity about what happened in those final days.
3: And I thought I'd just tell the jury how we're going to proceed today. And for the record, I'm going to initially call some of the first responders and I mentioned the names. The
6: inquest is a step-by-step presentation of the forensic evidence collected over the course of the past year. Evidence the California Highway Patrol says took tens of thousands of hours to compile. The key testimony comes from CHP officer Jake Slates. Much of what Slates disclosed
1: on the stand is familiar territory for listeners of this podcast. But there are new details and accounts, too. He says that, after the photo of Devante hugging the cop went viral, Jen received harassing emails. These were not invented. Slates read them himself. Another shocking reveal. There was a new witness, a camper, who says he heard the revving engine of the Yukon and a cry from the bottom of the cliff at 3 a.m., but dismissed it as an animal sound. It's awful to think someone could have responded sooner, but the inquest pathologist Dr. Greg Pizarro thinks it's unlikely anyone could have survived a fall of that magnitude. The deaths, he says, would have been nearly instantaneous. Slate says when rescue workers towed the Yukon back up the cliff, Jen's body, which had been wedged behind the steering wheel, fell some 60 feet, which made it difficult to identify her at first.
6: Those details are hard to stomach, but deep into the second day of the inquest, we got the answer to a question that has been bugging us for over a year. What role did Sarah Hart play in all of this? Was she complicit in Jen's plan? plates revealed that he was able to recover Sarah's cell phone records from right before the crash.
3: Sarah began asking Google questions such as Can 500 milligrams of Benadryl kill a 120-pound woman? What over-the-counter medications can you take to overdose? How can I easily overdose on over counter medications? Is death by drowning relatively painless? How long does it take to die from hypothermia in water while drowning in a car? What will happen when overdosing with Benadryl? One of the last searches that she did on her phone was while they're traveling through Oregon, and it was a search that she entered in and requesting Google to identify no-kill shelters for dogs.
1: These questions went on for hours. Sarah kept Googling from after midnight the Friday they fled until 6.30 p.m. the next evening. And this wasn't a hypothetical. At the time of her death, Slate's estimated, Sarah Hart had ingested 42 doses of an off-brand antihistamine. Both liquid and pill versions of the drug were found in the Yukon. The family had stopped to buy the medicine at a Walmart before ever leaving Washington. So there it was. Sarah was in on it. She wanted to die. She wanted all of them to die, too. And she wasn't the only one with shockingly high levels of the drug in her system.
3: Marcus, after doing the math, would have had to take in 19, approximately 19.2 uh, single-dose units. Abigail would have had to take in 14 dosage units. And Jeremiah would have had to take in 8.8 single-dosage units. Um, in order for them to get that level at that point that the blood is drawn. Now, that doesn't mean that they took that number. They could have been given more, but just at the time of the autopsies, when we drew their blood, that's what would have been in their system.
6: Slate said that Sarah would likely have been extremely intoxicated by the amount of medication she had taken, and the kids would be, quote, more than likely unconscious or sleeping. Jen, who was driving, didn't have the drug in her system, but had a blood alcohol content of 0.10, or about five drinks, which Slate said was especially significant.
3: We also note through our investigation and interviews of people that Jennifer never drank. Either witnesses stated that they never saw her have a drink, or they'd say occasionally they'd see her maybe have a glass of wine, but never finished that wine. Um, So... For a person to be at that level of intoxication and to have never drank or rarely ever drank, it would be extremely difficult for that person to function.
1: Slates testified that he didn't believe Jen and Sarah knew exactly what they were going to do when they sped out of their Washington home on Friday night. Even when Sarah was googling suicide methods on Saturday, he didn't think they had fully committed to the plan. Here's why. On Sunday morning, the day before their death, Jen bought groceries at Safeway. Remember, that's where she used her club card for discounts. That same day, she picked up eight toothbrushes and deodorant at a nearby
6: Dollar Tree. We've had a bit of an internal debate here. Could this be evidence that they still wanted to live? After all, who takes these precautions or buys these items when certain death is only a few hours away? On Saturday night... They switched off the vehicle's GPS for the first time in nine years. But Slates thinks Jen and Sarah's decision fully crystallized on Sunday as they drove up and down the coast near Fort Bragg. In between stops at beaches and parks, a wanderer's itinerary, they stopped waffling. They drugged the kids. Sarah numbed herself with pills. And Jen, who always called the shots in the relationship, finished the job.
3: Ultimately, I feel that based on Sarah and Jennifer's past history, the pattern that we see of um, the alleged child abuse and confrontations that they may have received out of the community, that this was just another case where they would run. One of the final questions I would ask all my witnesses would be based on the fact and how well you know Sarah and Jennifer Hart, would this be an act that they could do? Would this be, would they be the type of people that would say, if I can't have my children, nobody can have my children? And most of the witnesses either stated, yes, Jennifer would say that, or yes, that would be a decision that either both of them would make.
1: The jury only deliberated for an hour. The verdict was swift and unanimous.
5: The death certificates for Jennifer and Sarah Hart will be listed as suicide and the six children who perished on that day, their death, certainly as a jury rule, was determined to be at the hands of another, other by accident, and their death certificates will list homicide as a manner of death.
1: Afterward, most jurors quickly made their way to their cars, but one, Tony Howard, stayed back to talk to reporters for a few moments.
3: I'm gonna be really honest with you guys. Coming up with the decision really wasn't the hard part. Dealing with the whole tragedy was the hard part. There was some discussion. However, uh, after some short discussions, it was uh, unanimous. Yeah. Just the magnitude of all the children, um, that was a hard part for a lot of people.
1: It's been nearly four months since we wrapped the eighth and final episode of Broken Hearts. Since the series launched in December, it's been downloaded over six million times. Something Liz, Lauren, and I didn't expect when we first started thinking about this case. With the wide reach of the series also came comments from our listeners, many of whom experienced the same roller coaster of emotions we did while trying to better understand what happened to the hearts. There was positive feedback about how we viewed the story through an empathetic lens, questioned how social media can distort the truth, and how we were able to reveal the cracks and loopholes in the interstate adoption system. There was also criticism. Were we really the right people to tell this story? Should we have brought our own experiences as mothers into it? And how could we have used the word antihero to describe Jen and Sarah in the final episode?
6: We've read all the reviews. And one point of clarification. Antihero doesn't mean a sympathetic hero. In fact, it means the opposite. An antihero is someone who altogether lacks heroic qualities. And Jen and Sarah were not heroic. While the details revealed at the inquest confirmed the worst of our suspicions, we still believe that trying to see the humanity in even the ugliest stories is the only way to understand why people do the things they do. More than anything, we created this podcast not to tell a story perfectly or to solve a crime, but to try to give a voice to six children whose own voices were silenced. Their names were Marcus, Hannah, Devante, Abigail, Jeremiah, and Sierra.
1: Through all of our reporting, there were very few recordings or pieces of evidence that could help us fully understand the hell the Hart kids endured. A few weeks ago, a listener emailed us about her own experience. She says she was one of four Black siblings adopted out of foster care by a white family across state lines. And her story bears more than a passing resemblance to the Hart's. She told us it was hard to listen to this podcast because so many times she thought, that could have been me.
9: My mother, during the 80s, had a crack addiction for about 20 years. She had eight children total. It's a little blurred because I've never been able to get a clear-cut story from my adoptive mother.
1: Because of the sensitive nature of her story, we've chosen not to use this listener's name.
9: They were like the granola eaters. If you had a blueprint, it was them. They were vegan. Hindu tree huggers, you know, we didn't have any processed foods, Some clothes were hand me down, I mean, wild hair, you know, like the ultimate hippie lifestyle. And for us, it was shocking because we're coming from, you know, eating uh, Long John Silvers and living in a home with other Black people. So it didn't, of course, start off to be a horrible situation because their intentions in my opinion, were good. And they have to be because of the fact you're taking on children that you know will have some type of attachment issues, emotional issues. They have a a slight understanding of the children that they're bringing on, but I don't think it's a full understanding of what they're about to take on.
6: She says she and her siblings only took instruction from an older sister. There were trust issues. There were behavioral issues. She thinks her adoptive mother became overwhelmed by her lack of control over the kids. She thinks, no, she knows there are many more children with a similar story. And she wants them to know they're not alone. She wants to help lift them out of the despair she so acutely
9: understands. Her type of punishment wasn't necessarily that she would hit us or beat us. She started off doing that and realized it really wasn't effective for us. Because, you know, we came from foster care. We used to get our ass beat all the time with belts from the foster parents. So you would really have to do a number on us for us to really be moved by violence as far as punishment. She used to starve us so bad that we would steal from the neighbors. We would break into their homes and raise the refrigerators. We were the most hated children on the block because we wouldn't steal things. We'd break into their homes and steal food.
6: CPS got involved a few times, but the warning signs, and there were many warning signs, didn't sound any alarms. People saw what they wanted to see.
9: Nobody's coming out to the checkup on five children. They're just not. It's too far out. The closest office probably would have been a good two and a half hour drive. They just felt, like you were saying in the podcast, that what could possibly be wrong? Thank God these white people want to take care of these Black children who are addicted to crack and have all these issues. Thank God. Like, we should be grateful that they've been adopted as a sibling group.
6: She has thought long and hard about trying to press charges, but it's complicated.
9: I still have relationships with both of them. I actually just spoke to my dad yesterday. He has a a new partner, and um, she's really helped him not try to sweep things under the rug. She has been able to kind of give him perspective as to why his children are so mad at him and what he's done. Now, has he truly internalized it? That's his burden. Right there, the bear. and with also my adoptive mother, you know, there's no way she cannot sit here and think about the things that she's done and still step away. That's also her burden.
6: she says she'd like to write a book about all of this one day. She has a baby of her own now. and while it's been healing to feel that love, it also reminds her of what she lived through.
9: Now that I know what it felt like and I knew it was gonna change after you know, I have a child because everyone always tells you you feel different when you have a child and now that I do, it's like I don't understand how you could even look in the face of a child and neglect them, not feed them, or do anything.
1: So where do we go from here? There was a woman at the inquest named Mary. She says she never knew the hearts, but the story hits close to home. She adopted three of her four kids out of the foster system and knows firsthand how taxing and isolating it can be to raise children, especially multiple children, who have experienced trauma.
10: You know, when you're going through the process uh, out of fostering into adoption, you know, there are people and agencies around that can answer questions and, you know, uh, provide some amount of support. But for most families, once the, the adoption papers are signed, you are pretty much on your own. And, of course, it's it's after that time where a lot of the um, issues come out from, you know, whatever led to those kids being um, taken away from the biological families, whether it was abuse, neglect, um, drug and alcohol issues, violence, um that is all going to come out eventually and sometimes when the kids are younger but very often when they're teens and you know if you have more than one teen going through all those issues at once it, it can be really extremely challenging. Mm-hmm. I told a few friends that I was thinking of coming and they all tried to talk me out of it <laughs> knowing that it would be really distressing but um, I don't know. I... Sorry. No, it's okay. I just feel like I need to be a witness to what happened to the tragedy of their family.
1: Mary hopes that if anything comes from the rehashing of the gruesome details of this case, it's reform in the adoption and foster systems.
10: This is not something that was just obviously happened overnight. It's something that happened at various places over time. And, um, I mean, I, I don't know them. I've never, you know, met anyone from the family. But as an adoptive mom, um, if something's going to come out of this, it shouldn't just be about finger pointing. It needs to be about, what help and support can we give other people who are in these situations where you just feel like you don't know where to go or who to turn to and who can help? And um, that, I mean, if we're going to um, honor them in any way, that to me would would make the most sense.
6: Sheriff Allman hopes this story and the findings from the inquest will show lawmakers how desperately we need a national database for child abuse. After the inquest, he held a brief press conference.
5: We have a national database that reports mental illness, which prohibits them from having guns. We have a national database for criminal histories. We also have a national database for gun registration. We do not have a national database for child abuse allegations. And the fact that there were five states involved, Texas, Minnesota, Oregon, Washington, California, certainly should be a an enlightening moment for our national legislatures. I'm not going to say that, that if we had a national database that the Hart family would still be alive, but certainly there would have been more of an investigation and find out if the adoptions had been appropriate or if CPS should be a little bit more involved than in what they were.
1: And then it was all over. The live stream shut off. It was time for Lauren to go home.
7: After all was said and done, Sheriff Allman circled the parking lot, shaking journalists' hands as they got into their cars and saying goodbye to investigators. He finally walked over to where I was sitting on a bench and asked why I looked so despondent. I had, in fact, found the last bits of the puzzle shocking, just as he'd predicted, imagining just how awful those last hours were for the kids. And when the hearing officer read the verdict, the most closure we'd ever get in this case, I ugly cried silently for a few seconds before collecting myself. I didn't even want to be at an inquest. I wanted to be at a trial with someone there to actually punish someone to take the blame. The Hearts is a horror story, yes, but it's more explicitly an American horror story, one that could only happen here, and one that was aided and abetted by the culture in which we live. And I'm not just talking about our adoption courts and CPS systems. If we believe Jennifer Hart, and to a lesser extent Sarah, were con women, as friends and neighbors we've interviewed now understand them to be, then it's worth considering this. A con woman doesn't succeed by making up new rules for society. She succeeds by artfully using the rules, by playing on our expectations.
6: More often than not, Jen found people would trust the explanations of a charismatic woman, and yes, a white woman, more than her Black children. Friends and neighbors noticed how robotic and thin her kids were, but in the end, they trusted Jen more than their own eyes. She also knew political correctness would be a shield against unwanted scrutiny. She knew the power of a strong narrative on social media. She knew how much people, mostly white people, wanted to believe images of racial reconciliation whether it was fawning over Devontae hugging that cop or liking Facebook images of their rainbow family.
3: When I say that Jen was good, she was good.
1: They were one of my early role models for what, like, a non-traditional family could look like. Try
6: again.
3: Everyone was very envious of them because of how they could pull this off, how they can raise these six, quote-unquote, developmentally delayed children.
10: There's no part of me and all of my looking back that's capable of seeing that it was just a charade. We assume that people who are abusive are abusive both in their private lives, but also in their public lives, and we know this now not to be true. Oh gosh, aren't you something (laughs) else. Looking back on it, it doesn't look
3: like
9: they were normal kids. They didn't really have friends.
10: We thought they were all the same age. They were small,
4: so we thought they had to be in kindergarten. We are so prideful.
9: The
3: kids are skinny. Well, we just thought they were eating organic food. When I realized that she was a homeschool mom, I'm like, there's no way in hell those kids are learning. It's impossible with the amount of time she was devoting to us, to our game. That was an
5: issue for her, you know, being, uh, well, gay, I guess. So I just thought, you know, I don't want her to think that I'm being judgmental. I just want to be a good
3: neighbor. My son-in-law is like most people. They don't want to get involved.
6: I feel so guilty for not realizing, you know, that these were red flags. And it was just like, oh, God, I totally bought into it.
9: Absolutely, I think race is playing a part. These kids are being used as a prop.
3: These uh, white ladies came in and saved these six black children. Nice work, you saved them. You know, that was the narrative always. Which just, uh,
10: man. Some parents
1: do operate this way. You know, look what we did. We're symbols of racial harmony, and our kids are, are evidence of that.
9: It's tough.
5: We
1: love
9: those kids so much.
1: And it's sort of heartbreaking the fact that that would be utilized as a way to mask some of the abuse and neglect that was happening. It's just, um, just disturbing. And too many people bought it. Jen and Sarah Hart got away with what they did because there were green lights where there should have been red ones. They weren't criminal masterminds, they just weren't stopped.
10: He feels like he's trying to kiss me. Oh, well, maybe he loves you. <laughs> okay,
4: how
6: about that? Broken Hearts is a production of iHeartRadio and Glamour. If you suspect a child is being abused, call 1-800-4-A-CHILD. That's one 800 4 a a-C-H-I-L-D or visit childhelp.org to find out how to report your concerns. For access to exclusive photos and videos and documents about the case, visit glamour.com brokenhearts. Have questions for us about this podcast? Reach us on Twitter at GlamourMag or at brokenheartspod. If you like what you heard, leave us a review. Broken Hearts is a joint production between Glamour and How Stuff Works, with new episodes dropping every Tuesday. Broken Hearts is co-hosted and co-written by Justine Harmon and Elizabeth Egan and edited by Wendy Noggle. Lauren Smiley is our field reporter. Samantha Barry is Glamour's Editor-in-Chief. Julie Shen and Deanna Buckman head up the business side of this partnership. Joyce Pendola, Pat Singer, and Luke Zaleski are our research team. Jason Hoke is executive producer on behalf of How Stuff Works, along with producers Julian Weller, Ben Keebrick, and Josh Thane. Special thanks to Jen Lance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.